So, we are back at the game. We stopped podcasting for about a month or two. And now we have, let's say, a super big guest. We met last week and you told me you started a sunglasses company and you closed it. So that was like, you know, like an interesting story, the man who started the business and closed it. And then you are working full time with uh, all sports as a manager. But what makes this interview, like what started all this is the person. We always think that people are different and some people are really, you know, unique in an aspect that shows. Some people are unique, but they hide it or they don't show it or they don't know. But some people have self-awareness that makes them shine. And that's why I'm interviewing Hamza Iqbal. And I tried to check your LinkedIn. I didn't find one. So I, I, I don't have a lot of information about you, but because of that, we are interviewing you. So introduce yourself to us. Thanks, Abdullah, for having me here. Uh, my name is Hamza Iqbal. I do retail strategy, which is commercializing products. If you have a product and you want to sell it, look at the ideal channels to sell it. Look at social media strategy and also deal with overstock, which is excess inventory. That's something I specialize in. Um, the area of this industry, one of the areas of this industry that I'm still um, looking to get involved with is um, staff training for retail, for the sales floor, to really be able to influence um, um, or build the ability of sales staff to influence customers at the moment of sale or the transaction happening. Um, I did have an online eyewear company, it wasn't sunglasses, it was prescription eyewear and that's what I started in 2015. Um, I thought it was a good market to get into because there were higher, higher margins and um, getting into it as an online store would allow me to experiment a bit with um, um, advertisement budgets so it made sense. I was also doing a socially responsible business model where if you bought one pair of glasses um, we'd send another one to someone in need. So that's what really prompted me to get involved with uh, online retail and um, it really did fail. A lot of people think that um, online stores work but the fact is they don't. I'll get into more of that later. But what actually happened is that as soon as my friends were done buying from me there was very little interest from the outside community. Of course people want to try out their glasses before they buy them and um, it is function. It does of course help your vision but at the same time it alters the way your face looks in a big way and how people perceive your personality at work or at home. So it was something that people really wanted to like touch and feel in person. Um, what happened with that online store was that I was looking at YouTube videos to look at other potential um, experts in the industry who could help me figure out what's going on and make sure that I don't end up wasting my investment in the project. I came across a retail strategy consultant um, in New York and I trained with her for four months and that's what really made me realize how dynamic retail as an industry is. Um, I'm sure you're aware that in the US there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, consumerism and every season every product would essentially get changed in some way, either through design or through color. Um, 
So it's a very sort of um, structured industry there where making the sales is a separate sort of a science or a separate department as opposed to developing the product or just developing the brand in general. Okay. So you said that online stores that sell sunglasses or eyewear don't work because people would like to try that. Mm -hmm. So you believe in, in the, let's say, brick and mortar strategy for selling eyewear? For selling eyewear, I think, uh, for selling anything, I think it should be omnichannel, which means that you sell in store, then you also have a website, and then you also put it up on LinkedIn, oh sorry, on uh, Instagram, where you're directly able to handle sales. Um, I think that's the case because people expect to compare prices online, and that's the primary reason why people go online, they also want to browse colors and options. But the issue with online retail is that it is lacking in the sense that people can't really engage with the product. They need an experience, again, they need to touch and feel the product, try it out, and that's where the physical store comes in. If you look at Amazon, Amazon is not profitable in all quarters for its e-commerce business. What really makes the bulk of um, their profits is their web services, right? If you look at any online store in the world, it is not profitable if it is only online. And that's something people don't get. I think there's a, well, I try, well, I like to say that there's a lot of propaganda that goes on with um, e-commerce store development services and they have everyone believe that they can start their own store from a coffee shop and it'll be profitable and you'll get to skip your, uh, or um, quit, your, quit your lame job to get into online retail just through sitting at a coffee shop a few hours a day, but that really doesn't work. Um, I think definitely more sales would likely happen in the future online if um, e-commerce technology developed in a way that people were able to experience products. One of the ways this is happening is through augmented reality or 3D try-on services, the same way you have uh, Snapchat allowing people to put on, put on glasses. You've got, people, you've got services that allow people to um, um, virtually wear shoes, move, move their feet around and try to see how they'd look like. Um, I think the other um, issue with e-commerce is the high rate of return, which is not the rate of investment return, but the rate of merchandise return, which can go up to 40%. So a lot of my friends in the US, and I'm sure some of you who are listening to, that to this podcast have also done the same. You'd buy something online from a store and wear it to an event, a party or whatever, and then give it back. So around 40% of people are doing the same for the apparel industry. And uh, in the US, this is a big problem because they're legally required to accept those returns, right? Um, at the same time, I think e-commerce returns is um, an opportunity for brands and companies to be able to see where and how exactly the customer uses their product, what price points they're comfortable at. But e-commerce e returns are a big, big issue that even Amazon and some of the other big online retailers haven't been able to deal with. Because essentially, once someone returns a product, most products are not in um, a resellable condition. So that's the waste that the um, e-commerce company has to bear. Yeah. But don't you think, I know this is off the, off the main questions, but don't you think that selling online has less cost? You don't have to pay rent. You don't have to employ salesmen who are in the premises of the store. You don't have to deal with electricity bills, lighting, air conditioning, hospitality. You have a website pay for hosting, you pay for domain, you pay for shipping, you have an inventory, 
And that's it. And maybe because of that, potentially it can be very profitable because you reduce the costs a lot. Yes, you can, I know, compromise on the experience, but don't you think that online stores are made to be profitable because they have less costs in terms of, you know, front and reoccurring? Well, it is true that running an online store is more convenient. You can fulfill orders whenever you're available. Yeah. Um, and then you don't need, of course, a, a huge team of staff to take care of customer service or fulfillment. But at the same time, when was the last time you just browsed a random online store? You need to be advertised to be able to, you know, be reminded of the existence of the store. With brick and mortar stores, you'll pass by it, you'll drive by it, you'll see it. Um, every day and then that kind of encourages you to explore but with online stores with every user that you get on to the website in terms of traffic you're paying some amount of money and if you're in the big urban centers which is where most of the e-commerce market is yeah you're obviously bidding against big companies some of the biggest multinationals to get online ad space and that costs you so on average if 1,000 people see your ad online one of them is going to click and if you get 1,000 visitors on a website, on average, one, one of the users will actually make a purchase. So you can have, you, with that you can sort of guess the amount of cost of customer acquisition that builds up with uh, online stores. And then um, that really is the issue because it's super hard to get people online to browse and to really experience what you're offering. Okay, I got your point. So instead of thinking about cost-wise, you, you think about being visible and being practically not here because in online you need to search to get to the website or you need to place an ad and this ad competes with a lot of ads, so yeah. So moving on, you know, we... we yeah. Sorry, adding to that, I think one of the biggest issues with online retail is that at the end of the day, you're trying to make sure that all your inventory also moves fast. You really can't just wait for people to stumble upon your online store or to hear about it when you speak to them um, in uh, real life to really get a chance to browse. Um, I think that really is the biggest issue when it comes to online retail. You're never going to have a steady stream of people coming in. When e-commerce stats are reported, um, they also include, include um, macro sort of um, commercial activities such as online bill payment which often gets included as stats for e-commerce so that gets people confused and then you've got the travel industry which is completely fine um, making profits online because the services they offer is different and more standardized yeah. so if you're buying online air tickets or buying hotels that also comes as e-commerce of course and that makes the bulk of um, the e-commerce reported global revenues in terms of um, services you've got other services of course and then at the same time, you've got commodities every day, for example, groceries. And those are the sectors where you see e-commerce growing because customers know what to expect from a one liter bottle of Clorox. And that's going to be the same every time. So when it comes to reordering and capturing sales, e-commerce is helpful and it is very efficient and cheap, as you mentioned. Um, but in terms of engaging a customer or forming a first time experience, it most likely never works. Okay. So moving on, you know, we interview people who we think they are greatly different from others and because people are different, they can be polarizing. So not like everyone would be, oh, this man is amazing. Some people would say, oh, this man is the opposite of amazing. 
and this makes all the difference because I think if you live a life that you be a vanilla man who says yes to everyone and being likened at a certain decent level by everyone, maybe this life is not very exciting. And being polarizing makes you remembered, makes you by, by existing, just by existing, impacting others. Because you're vivid, it's like, you know, a shiny color among a vast grayscale landscape. You are a, a very vivid color shining. So, you as Mr. Hamzat, businessman, what makes you different as a businessman on and as a, a person? Or, you know, s some people who interview say, I don't know what makes me different. We, we had an interview with uh, an entrepreneur and he said, I don't care if I'm different or not because I'm doing my job I don't have to think philosophy about that. So what's your take? I think I think I definitely agree that being your own person is polarizing and um, I do think that's funny too in the way that that has um, impacted my career or social life. But um, I think it's important not to have regrets and uh, as I grow older one of the things that I don't want to do is to really be this bitter middle-aged man really unhappy with their career and their life because they went for a path that was very structured and that of course was very competitive and that's what happens with most careers right most of the most like most of the big sought after standard ideal long dreamt careers are um, super competitive and people go into them real thinking that just hard work will get them through um, eventually suffer because there's so many other forces at play um, that really impacts the amount of work that they're able to put in. However, if you work on what you're passionate about, you might not get it in the first or second year, you might not have a livable wage in the third or fourth year even, but at the end of the day, you'll get good at it and there's going to be very few other people in the industry doing the same thing. So you do get a lot of visibility, as you said, professionally. But I think personally what really helps you um, progress is that you're able to do more than eight hours of work a day or you're able to fuse your professional and personal lives, so you're working on the weekends and you don't see your work as work. This is very cliched but if you look at anyone who is someone in their industry, you'll notice this, that they don't really um, divide professional and um, personal workspaces or like life modes. It all has to sync. There is no work-life balance, I think. You have to take both of them together and you're only able to do that if you're really, really passionate about what you do. So what makes it different is being workaholic. Um, well, it's not work if you really, I know this is really cliche, but it's not work if you really like what you're doing. Um, and you get a, like a, like a buzz out of doing it, right? However, if you're in something more structured, it really kind of limits the way you can approach a problem because if you look at um, some of the other more, let's say, um, typical jobs someone with my degree would be doing, which is international politics. Some of the typical um, professions would be being uh, a consultant with one of the big companies. And all of that is really structured, not, not just in terms of time and access and industry-specific uh, expertise, but it's also very controlled in, in, the, in the kind of um, approach you can take to uh, realizing whatever goals of um, your activities. And if you're working independently like I do, you're not limited by what medium you, you'll be using. It's more challenging, but you get to learn new things every day. You get to learn new skills every day. And also, 
what I think is important is that you get to appreciate people who have the skills that you don't have because you really need them on, on uh, some certain activities and you really develop um, an understanding and appreciation of skills that you don't have. But you don't get over or let's say stressed out, burned out from all this, the vast amount of work coming to you and you executing every day. Because as a general manager, you just don't, you don't do just work. You have to communicate with people, you have to respond to others, and you have to do that quickly sometimes. So being in this state of um, expecting replies from everyone, expecting emails, sending emails, going to supplies, um, talking to customers, meeting with the other members, dealing with the problems that the company has, and because you're the top man, it's on you. So doesn't that kill you? Being an entrepreneur, uh, we, we had an interview with uh, Khawaja Jafar, he's the CEO of Sankar, the grocery online company. And he said being an entrepreneur sucks really, it's very stressful. Mm-hmm. And, and usually people go there because they don't know this dark side. But you say it's wonderful, even though you're inside. So this, right is, now this is really different. So right, right now I work for an SME and um, it's not, of course, as hectic as uh, some of the other startups that you mentioned because their operations are very diverse and kind of split apart. Um, it is challenging, but I think it's important to be able to connect to every part of the business or kind of get involved in a lot of the business operations to be able to see the bigger picture. But I do think that a lot of people getting into their own businesses and specifically tech startups, they don't... Um, they're not aware of the kind of chaos that they're getting into. And I think it's important because once you move to a more structured job with a bigger organization, that's something that you actually miss. The thrill is something that um, you won't get in a 95 job. I think it's also important for people to realize that within, with, like with all the stress and the expectation to do bigger and better um, every day or every week, you also grow a lot, but you don't see it. You only see it um, in the long term, but in the short term, you don't see the kind of growth that you're going through. Um, it's also pretty exciting if you work with the right kind of people, and I think um, that's something that you keep, need to keep in mind. And specifically for startups, if you have three or four members on your team, I would recommend that that you make sure that everyone has different skills. So as a team, you guys have breadth of experience and knowledge, but individually, you guys have, um, well, each individual person has depth of expertise and knowledge, right? So everyone is able to bring something unique to the table. And um, again, I think if you've got people, I was having a conversation with someone about this yesterday. If you have people who take responsibility for their work, um, who you can just assign stuff to, or they'd be happy to take um, responsibilities, um, that really changes, your day-to-day life with a small company or a startup because you want people who follow through a challenge till the end not make excuses you assign something to yourself or to them and um, you're confident that they're going to get it done so I think that's really important okay so closing the podcast you know there are always people who want to be big in their industry they want to be good businessmen or women entrepreneurs and so on so from your experience in the retail industry and your previous work what advice like what's the most important advice you'd give someone that's practical and would really 
help them in a way that they can see in the future, short term or long term? Um, specific to retail or small business in general? Aspiring entrepreneurs. Um, I think it has to be that you have to be different in what you're doing, you have to take a chance. Because if you're doing something that's very typical, that's been done 45 times before, the odds are that there are other people who have the kind of contacts and the kind of access and insider knowledge that you can't develop overnight. However, if you're doing something unique in terms of delivering the product or creating the product, then you're only competing with yourself. That's also very exciting. But at the same time, um, that kind of in the big, like the bigger picture is that that kind of challenges the industry as a whole. So you're going to have an impact. You might not see it there and then, but four or five years ago, someone is going to start a similar business, like yours, mm -hmm. right? And uh, you'll be able to see that um, your work kind of adds to something, that there's a bigger um, sort of change in the industry because of what you initiated. Your business might not be successful, but it would change the way other people see um, that specific sort of uh, industry, that specific kind of work. Okay, so you say be different. Because that will make you stand out and that will make your life easier when it comes to competition. Be different with purpose and that's a good starting point. That doesn't mean that's the end of it, right? Okay. So you still need to put in more work actually than something more established because you're the first one to try to figure it out, right? So to sort of contextualize it, it would be, let's say, a business that's never been taken online. Um, if you're the first person to do it, you're going to have to come across a lot of difficulties. For example, regulatory stuff, licensing, a lot of, a lot of that are actually pushing for um, something that the government previously, for example, wouldn't be uh, allowing to kind of retail or sell online. So it does come with challenges, and, so, and that means you're going to have to be doing more work. But it's going to come with less competition because everyone wants an easy win, and you're not going for the easy win. Yeah, that's an excellent way to end it. You're not going for the easy one. And a good title. Okay, Hamza, so it's an excellent opportunity to talk to you. I'm sure the listeners would have to listen twice to get all of the information you're giving. It's a stream of knowledge. And you've been very generous telling us about your story in terms of the eyewear company, in terms of retail, in terms of the lessons you learned. So thank you a lot for your time. And hopefully we can talk soon. Thank you for having me here. I am super happy to share my experience. Um, and I wish you the best.